This evening, congregation, in your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, Matthew 16, we'll be reading from verses 13 through 21. After we read from the Word of God itself, we'll turn our attention to what we receive as a faithful summary of the Word of God, our Belgic Confession. This evening, we come to Article 19. So we read first from Matthew 16, you can find it in the Pew Bible, page 1131, and then the Belgian Confession, Article 19, you can find that in the Forms and Prayers book, page 172. And the text that we're going to be reading from the Gospel according to Matthew has been identified uh, by many scholars as the great pivot point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read from Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Thus far, our reading from the Word of God. Article 19 of our Belgic Confession, entitled The Two Natures of Christ, states there, we believe that By being thus conceived, the person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with human nature in such a way that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus, his divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. It has beginning of days, it is of a finite nature, and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature. For our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body. But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature even when he was lying in the grave. And his deity never ceased to be in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a while it did not show itself as such. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man, true God in order to conquer death by his power, and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll notice that in the Belgian Confession, uh, there is what we might call technical theological language, and we appreciate that technical theological language 
And it is our goal this evening, uh, with lucid brevity, uh, to explain that theological language. But I want to redirect your attention by way of introduction to the question that Jesus Christ put before Peter and before the disciples, and by extension, the question that comes to all of us as individual persons. Who do you say that he is? I believe that in the Western world, just about everybody will acknowledge the historicity of a person named Jesus who lived in the first century. But who is he? You see, that's the pressing question. Uh, that's a pressing question because it is a personal question that is inescapable. You and I and everybody who hears these words, both now but also for all of eternity, will have to give an answer. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? And it's a pressing question because you might say that all of eternity hangs in the balances of how we answer that question. Now, I know that students, perhaps in high school, perhaps in college and university, and also, uh, in the real world, we are confronted with many, many, many questions. You can think of the questions that fill our assignments, questions that fill our tests and our exams. Many of those questions perhaps are profitable, uh, but I would submit to you that you could get every single question wrong, except this one. If you get every other question wrong, sure, perhaps you will not advance far socially, academically, perhaps even vocationally, and also relationally. But if by the Holy Spirit and the revelation that comes from heaven above, if now and especially on our deathbed we know the correct biblical answer to who do you say that I am, if we are able to say with true and genuine faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then indeed we are and we will be blessed. So in this answer, there is the expression in part of our belief concerning the Christ, and we've made that our theme for this evening. And we want to see that in this answer there is the affirmation that this belief includes two natures, our first point, one person, our second point, and exclusive Savior, our third point. So our belief concerning the Christ First of all, with two natures, secondly, as one person, and then thirdly, as exclusive Savior. Who do men say that I am? Many answers were given, and indeed today many answers are given. Some of the popular answers then uh, was that Jesus Christ was a prophet from the Old Testament. You'll notice uh, the summary that they said in verse 14. Well, some say that you are John the Baptist, some say you are Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You'll notice that nearly everyone in those days recognized something unique about this person, Jesus, from Nazareth. Something unique even about his work. They recognized that he was just not uh, a commoner, so to speak. They recognized that he was not, not uh, one of the uh, typical individuals uh, who were populating the earth during that time. And so also today, many will recognize that there is something unique about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so popular answers include, well, he was, you know, an extremely wise rabbi. And he gave wonderful teachings on how to live a, a profitable life. Maybe even how to give the entirety of your person to a notable cause. 
Uh, there used to be a, a very, very common quest for the historic Jesus. Uh, and all sorts of higher academia gave themselves to following their own rational abilities to try to come to an understanding of who this person is and who this person was. Nearly all of those attempts failed in the futility of man's rationalistic abilities, rejecting the Word of God. But if we simply come to the Word of God with a childlike faith and receive its self-revelation, then we will be absolutely assured that in our answer concerning the Christ, we begin with two natures. And that brings up this question, what exactly is a nature? We use this term very commonly in relationship to our Christology, our belief about the person of Jesus Christ. And so to borrow a definition, uh, providentially by the late P.Y. Young, by the term nature we express the sum total of all the essential qualities of a thing. Uh, now it's not nearly as well worded, but a definition that has stuck within my own mind is that the nature of a, of a thing, whatever that thing might be, you could take this pulpit for example, uh, you could take the pew or the chair that you are seated in. The, the real heart of a nature is that which makes the thing the thing. And so in relationship to this pulpit, uh, there, there are various accidental elements. So there's a, a microphone uh, port right here. You could take that off the pulpit and it would still be a pulpit. Uh, you could even perhaps uh, take the water glass here and you could remove that. Various other accidental elements. But if you if you were able to take wood away from this pulpit, the pulpit would thereby cease to have an existence. And so we might ask ourselves, what is the nature of this construction of this pulpit? And we would say, well, it is wood. And so the nature is the sum total of all of the essential qualities of a thing or that which makes something what it is. And we believe, and again, we're going to underscore repeatedly throughout this evening's message, that we believe what we believe based upon the revelation of the Word of God. When we turn to the Word of God, we see that there is a clear revelation that Jesus Christ from eternity possesses a very real divine nature, that He is God. Now, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. We have emphasized that over past weeks, uh, so we pass somewhat quickly over that uh, this evening uh, we note that in Jesus' divine nature, uh, He is fully God. Not just partially God, but He is fully God, infinite and omnipresent, uh, as has been uh, stated and elaborated in previous articles. But in addition to that, again based upon the revelation that we receive from the Word of God, we believe that Jesus Christ also, from the moment of the conception that took place by the work of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary, that He also, from that very moment, up until the present, and will for all of eternity, possess a very real human nature, being fully man. So that everything that makes up the human nature, Jesus Christ also possessed from the moment of the conception going forward. And so Jesus Christ had a real human body. And He had a real human soul. And early church Christological uh, heresies, they, they debated all of these things, and it forced the early church back to the testimony of Scripture to uh, hammer these doctrines out. But we came to understand, as the Spirit led the church into all truth, that Jesus Christ, in the fullest of time, assumed unto Himself 
a very real human nature. Now, how do we know this? Uh, according to the divine nature, uh, we have clear passages such as in John 1, the Word was God. And we also have the divine titles being given to the second person of the Trinity. And so you can think also the prophecy of Isaiah already. He shall be called Mighty God. You can think of the divine works. Works which only God can do. Works of creation out of nothing. And so all that was created was created by Him that is the second person of the Trinity. And so because there are these clear revelations along with divine names, divine titles, and divine works being attributed to the second person of the Trinity, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is fully God. Moreover, worship is rightfully given to Him. And we know that we are only to worship God. But when... Men bow down before Jesus Christ. He does not say, as the angels often say, don't do that, but rather He rightfully receives our worship because He is fully God. But the wonderful, although mysterious, truth of the matter is is that He's also fully man. Now we speak here, of course, after the reality of the Incarnation has been historically accomplished. And so we read about Jesus Christ, and boys and girls, you, you learn these stories, I trust, the stories of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. So he grew tired. Well, we know the divine does not tire. We know God does not get tired. And yet Jesus Christ was tired, and he was also hungry. We know that the divine nature does not grow hungry. All of these attributes or these characteristics or these descriptors apply to the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more clearly, we see Scripture speak about the humanity of Jesus Christ. We think for one example of Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, so he became like us. He became like us, taking our very human nature unto himself. And that gives us this motivation, this encouragement. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so two questions can be asked as we reflect upon these basic truths of two natures. You might say, although we say this with profound reverence, we have the best of both worlds in our Lord and in our Savior. He is eternal God with all of the power, all of the knowledge, all of the wisdom that belongs to the divine. But he's also our brother. He bears our nature. And as we transition into our second point, if anyone here ever thinks that no one understands, the Christian has one who perfectly understands. So if you ever find yourself faced with fears, doubts, perplexities, trials, maybe even self-doubts, maybe even self-doubts about the Christian faith, maybe even doubts about your own exercise of faith. We have one, our Savior, who knows what it is to be human. Because in the fullness of time, 
he took unto himself a very real human nature. But not only that, he did so as one person. And that brings us into our second point. Based upon Scripture, again, uh, with a proper balance, who do you say that I am? We begin to answer that. You are the eternal Son of God, fully God, and yet in the fullness of time, you became the Son of Man as you took a very real human nature unto yourself through the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Well, what exactly is a person? And here again, we borrow from P.Y. DeYoung, and he states that by the term person, we express independent subsistence or individuality, which distinguishes each human being from all others. Perhaps an illustration to help us see something of this matter Uh, especially for the boys and girls, but all of us, many of us, not all of us, but many of us have been blessed with brothers and sisters. Uh, And and we share the human nature with our brothers and sisters. So you can think of your brother, you can think of your sister. They also have a body. They also have a soul. Uh, Unless there's been uh, some dreadful deformity or some dreadful accident, they also have two arms, two legs, two feet two hands, two eyes. They're they're like us in the fact that they have a very real human nature like we do, and yet they're a different person. They are not you. There may even be striking physical similarities. And maybe sometimes children, you, you have this, you know, someone will mistaken you for your older brother or your younger sister, and they'll call you by your name, and there's something, I can remember this growing up, three years behind my brother, and it always happened in school because he was uh, an exemplary student, attained all of the academic accolades you could possibly desire. Uh, I not so much, and so I would come along three years after, and we'd be sitting in class, and the teacher would say, Steve, that's the name of my brother. Steve, what's the answer? First of all, I didn't know the answer. Secondly, I didn't know who was this person calling Steve. I'm not Steve. I'm Greg. I'm an individual, distinct person. That's what we mean by person. Well, Jesus Christ is not two persons. There was an early Christian, Christological rather, heresy that taught that Jesus Christ was two distinct persons. Uh, But thankfully, theologians saw the importance, the, the necessity of having one person at the cross with two natures. And so theologians went back to Scripture, uh, and I don't want to say they found there, but uh, they, they understood that, no, Jesus Christ, two natures, but only one person. And the primary way in which that is revealed in Scripture is that the Bible, and remember again, the Bible is given by inspiration. It's not just merely the words of men, but the Bible always refers to Jesus Christ with what we call the singular pronoun. Now you might say, well, maybe perhaps you're, you're just trying to emphasize some small little grammatical nuance. No, if you look very clearly and very plainly uh, in Matthew 13, Matthew 16, rather 13, Jesus puts this question, who do men say that I? That's a, that's a personal pronoun. He doesn't say, who do men say that we are? But who do men say that I am? And of course, he repeats that emphasis in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And you can read all through the historical narratives of the Gospels, and you will find that there is the the consistent use 
of the singular pronoun. Then Jesus went and did this, and then he said that, and then he did this, and then he went there. Uh, and so there is uh, this theological truth behind this uniperson, and that is a union, an incarnational union. And, and here we acknowledge that the, the language becomes somewhat technical, but necessary to be so technical. And we're going to try to walk carefully, but also uh, quickly through this. And, and just simply, you could in your notes write down a few of these words. Theologians call this union a hypostatic union. A, a, a union of the two natures in the one person in such a manner that the two natures are not mixed or blended together. Now maybe boys and girls, you, you, you watch your mother bake brownies and she puts in, I don't know whatever she puts in, she puts in the, uh, the, the, the batter that comes in the box, maybe she makes them from scratch, but she pours in that bag of uh, whatever it is, flour, and then she cracks a few eggs in there, and then maybe some oil, and then she blends it and it all mixes together. That's not what happens in the incarnation. The divine remains divine. The human remains human. They are united together in one person without mixture, without a blending, such that each nature retains or keeps its respective properties or attributes. And those attributes of both natures can be ascribed to the one person. So on the one hand, you can say that Jesus Christ never tires, according to his divine nature. And yet you can also say that Jesus Christ was tired, according to his human nature. And now we confess that this is a profound mystery. Uh, and that's why we make the foundation of our faith the revelation of the Word of God, not the rationalistic abilities of our very minds. And, and this, again, is so important and it's so necessary, especially when the person of Jesus Christ comes to the cross. And I like, although it's not original with me, I like to think of it this way. There at the cross, you, I, we, for our salvation, need both natures in one person. You see, this is not just abstract theology. This is not just some minute little point. This is the very essence of salvation. Because it is the divine nature that enables the human nature to suffer the infinite wrath of God in a finite amount of time. The human nature suffers, but the divine nature enables the human nature to sustain that suffering. And it is the divine nature that enables Jesus Christ to proclaim concerning the sufferings that he experienced in his human nature, then to triumphantly say, it is finished. And you see, it is the divine nature remaining united to the human body of Jesus Christ as that is committed into the grave that preserves that human body from any type of decay underneath the power of death. And that same divine nature remains united to the human soul of Jesus Christ even as Jesus Christ fulfills that which he said to the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And then three days later, it is the divine nature that enables the reunification of body and soul of the human nature of Jesus Christ to burst forth and to break free from the power of death as our mediator. 
as our substitute. And that ties in uh, to our third point. Uh, the belief concerning the Christ is that he is the exclusive Savior. And here we come to the real heart of the matter. Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that Jesus is just one of many? Of course we cannot believe that. Well, why can we not believe that? Because of the clear testimony of Scripture. Jesus Christ is not one of many saviors. He is the Savior. There is one and only mediator between God and man. Because there is only one person who simultaneously is very God and very man. And as very God, there is only one Savior who can conquer death. No mere human can conquer death. No mere human can bring himself or herself back from the depths of physical death. No mere human, to speak this way, can by himself and although I recognize its graphic language, uh, the scriptural truth behind it is there. No mere human can dig themselves out of the grave. In order to do that, we need something that is more than human, that which is divine. And this already uh, is seen and unfolded throughout uh, the entire history of redemption. And so in recent weeks, we've, we've looked at that first gospel promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. And that promise that one would come who would crush the, the head of the, the serpent in order to fulfill that, that crushing activity, that absolute pulverizing action upon the head of the serpent, Satan. Yes, that has to be a human heel, but there has to be the divine force behind that human heel. And so we can ask ourselves it this way. Would you, could you be satisfied with the Jesus who is not divine? I, I hope almost immediately your soul screams, no. I need a divine Savior who is able to conquer death, who is able to conquer the grave, who is able to conquer sin, who is able to carry my soul throughout time and across the Jordan and into eternity. I need my Savior to be fully God. Well, thanks be to God that He is fully God. But then, perhaps your soul also says simultaneously, but I also need Him to be fully man because I understand, again, by the revelation of Holy Scripture, uh, that it is the human nature in Adam, representing the entirety of the human race, it is the human nature that has sinned against God, that has offended the righteousness of God. And so it is the human nature that must satisfy for the righteous requirements of God. So the blood of untold millions of animals could never atone for our sin. I, and although angels, of course, being spiritual beings, do not have blood uh, to speak uh, in a figurative way, uh, the sacrifice of an innumerable number of angels could never satisfy for our sin. And if you were to ever discover some type of living being that was not an animal or not an angel, whatever or whoever that in our imagination could or would be, that could never satisfy 
for the sins of the human race. Well, what can satisfy for the sins of the human race? A very real human nature. Like unto us in all points with the exception of sin. Thanks be to God we have such a Savior. Very God of very God, but also very man of very man. Now, I stress again that this is not just merely some deep, abstract, theological issue. This is the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. You know, you think of Simon Peter, fascinating person. He had his ups and his downs, did he not? You can think of the rash Peter saying, Lord, if everyone else abandons you, I'll be with you. And then a mere moment later, I don't know this man, taking vows and rash oaths, curses upon his lips to say, I don't know this man. You can think of Peter uh, when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ walking on water. Uh, he, uh, in his typical rashness, jumps out of the boat and begins to walk across water, performing uh, an unhuman feat for a few steps. And then he looks at the circumstances around him and his eyes are taken off of his Lord and Savior and he begins to sink. You can think of Peter who says in the darkness of the post-crucifixion life of the disciples, well, I'm just going to go back to fishing. And you can think of Peter receiving that exhortation, go and feed my sheep. But one thing we ought to say about Peter was that he was a blessed man. Well, what made him blessed? Well, look again to our text. Jesus answered in verse 17 and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And I say tonight that if your answer concerning who Jesus Christ is, if the answer that comes from your mind and from your heart, from your very soul, is that I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, with a very real divine nature and a very real human nature, united together in the one person, if that's your answer, then blessed also are you. But if that's not your answer, then you're not blessed until you come to submit your mind and your heart to the revelation of the Word of God concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, with a mysterious hypostatic union of those two natures in one person, an exclusive Savior. There was another disciple. Well, obviously there were 11 other disciples. One other disciple, a unique person, Thomas. Thomas often, I think somewhat unfairly, given the title Doubting Thomas. And he did have his moments of doubt concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When others came to him, he said, unless I see with my eyes the nail prints and touch with my hand uh, the sword, the spear rather, I will not believe. Jesus then comes to him and he says later, Thomas, look, touch, believe and see. But then Jesus Christ says to Thomas, you have seen and you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that includes us because none of us have seen the Lord Jesus Christ with our five senses, with the, the sense of sight. We have not touched him. We have not handled him. And yet, the Spirit has worked within our hearts through the testimony of Holy Scriptures, uh, this, this reliable confidence. Uh, and coming forth from our hearts ought to be, and there must be the same 
proclamation that Thomas had when he was brought to a renewed exercise of a confident faith. As his eyes beheld the resurrected Lord Jesus, two natures, one person, the exclusive Savior, do you remember what his statement was? My Lord and my God. And as we draw to a close this evening, I just simply want to put that question before you. Is that your statement of faith also? Remember that we began that this is the most important question, a personal question, a vital question. All of eternity hangs in the balances. The question continues to come to everyone who hears these words, myself, yourself included, who do you say that Jesus Christ is, the Son of Man? I trust, I hope, I pray that your answer is, he's my Lord and he's my God, fully God also fully man, one only Savior. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do honor and glorify you for the unspeakable riches that are in Jesus Christ, also for the unfathomable mystery of the Incarnation. Lord, we pray that our minds might not be overwhelmed with deep theological matters, but may we have a mature understanding concerning who Jesus Christ is, and may that understanding be solidly based upon the revelation that there is within the Word of God. Father, for hearts that are young, also for hearts that are old, may we be drawn for the first time or by renewal back to the essence of the question and the answer in Matthew 16, so that both now but also when our lives and their earthly aspects come to an end, when we are confronted with that question, may our answer be, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We ask then that you would add your blessing to these words to that end for the sake of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.